Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Deep Sea Podcast. Uh, my name's Dr. Thomas Lindley and I'm here with Dr. Alan Jameson. And we've gotten together to, uh, well, to try and produce a podcast. It, it felt it felt necessary for, for a start. I can't believe there wasn't a podcast on the Deep Sea. There is some weird and wild podcasts out there and I can't believe somebody uh, hasn't decided to do this. And it's nice to be able to, as researchers into the deep sea, to talk to people directly. There are some interesting sort of biases when people talk about the deep sea, even amongst scientists. Uh, it, it holds a special place in our, in our minds uh, and it influences the way we see it sometimes and certainly influences the way it's reported. Quite a lot of the media stuff, we just don't feel it, it, it did it justice. So uh, we're looking for the opportunity to, to talk to you directly. Who are we and why do we have any right to talk to you about it? If you're interested in the deep sea, if you are keen on documentaries and following the news, you've probably come across our stuff already. And Blue Planet 2 on the deep sea episode, uh, that lander you see descending into the Mariana Trench is actually a, a simulation, a model of one of our vehicles. Uh, and it showed some of our uh, footage during that documentary as well. If you've seen anything about deepest records, deepest fish, things like that, that was probably us as well. We were on the expedition that found the, uh, the current deepest fish, uh, the Mariana snailfish. And Alan, very recently, you increased the depth record for octopuses by, I think it was about 2,000 metres, wasn't it? It wasn't, wasn't a tiny jump. Yeah, it was 2,000 metres, yeah. Is there anything I missed there for, for where folk might have seen us? No, I think any scientific outputs from the five deepest expedition was, was generated by us. Any of the deepest fish, any of the trench stuff. I think trenches are what we're mostly known for. Anything that mentions the word hadle or trenches, that's our bag. So when we, when we talk about the deep sea, we commonly... Well, basically it means once you've, you've left the bit influenced by land, once you've left the shelf... Uh, so generally we say anything deeper than 200 metres, but that is the massive majority of the planet. Uh, we have these an average depth of about 4,000 metres, and we have these huge abyssal plains that uh, cover most of the planet, uh, well over half the planet in fact. Where me and Alan specialise is the deep parts among the deep parts, so you get these deep sea trenches where the tectonic plates push together. And then you get some uh, incredibly deep water. You get down to uh, almost 11,000 metres in the Challenger Deep. But moving forward, it's not just going to be our voices and maybe our accents, which are either charming or difficult to understand. We are also going to get as many interesting people as we can to talk as well. And we're not going to just focus on scientists. Travelling all over the world, going to all these places, going out at sea for long periods of time, it gathers characters, it gathers interesting people. So we have got uh, some of them to agree to have little interviews with us. And we've got, uh, I think we've got six already in the bag. And it is worth sticking around. They're, they're far more interesting than us. And they've been really quite candid in the interviews. So we've got a, a wide variety of topics we're going to talk about. So there'll be an interview as part of each of the podcasts. Coming up on our very first episode, Alan has a rant about a cliche we constantly hear about the deep sea. We talk about scientific writing and how it works and what peer review really means. Which is handy, as our very first guest is Professor Monty Priard, chief editor of the scientific journal Deep Sea Research Part 1. And Monty is a deep sea legend in his own right, and we discuss considering biology from an engineering standpoint. Unfortunately, when we do that, uh, we have some bad news about the Megalodon. We finish off with a tale from the high seas. Alan confesses why, after becoming the world's deepest diving Brit, he's standing a little oddly in the photos. All this and more coming right up. So to talk about how the deep sea is often misrepresented and uh, how we want to add a bit of realism and, and show how it truly is. And Alan, I heard and I was taught and I believe that we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the deep sea and that more people have been to the moon than have been to the deep sea. No, don't get me started. No, I know that. I've, I've read that hundreds of times. It's the opener of almost every newspaper article. You, you can't tell me that's wrong. It is wrong. This is a classic case of self-flagellation in deep sea science. It's one of the things that bugs me probably the most. I think this is probably a very good episode one rant. Get this over and done with now. Plus, it's also quite topical because there are things happening right now which, which knocks off some of these things that were already stupid and now we're actually genuinely, totally and utterly stupid. So there's this phrase that we know more about the surface of the moon than we know about the deep sea. And it's, 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 it is just ridiculous. It's one of these misleading statements that it's used in almost every deep sea related article or speech or media coverage or whatever it may be. But what other 
scientific discipline would insist on opening any dialogue, whether written or verbal, with a statement about how little you know about your own discipline. It seems just ridiculous. It's like, hi, I'm, I'm, I'm a scientist. I know nothing about my subject. It seems really odd. So, you know, I've recently read this on something advertising World Oceans Days. I've seen it in various marine foundation statements, and it was a subject of a TEDx talk, and recently I saw it, it was the opening line of a acceptance speech for Public Engagement Award. You know, and it just won't go away. And even I was quoted as saying this about a year and a half ago from a journalist, and I wrote to them and said, I didn't say this because if there's anyone who wouldn't say this, it's me. And they said, and it was almost like, but that's what people say. <laughs> so we're just going to put it in. This is what people want to hear. They want to hear that you know nothing about your discipline and we know loads about the moon. Uh, and it actually went out on a press release and got, got some coverage on it, and I was mortified. So this subject is something that came to light. It's quite a funny story, actually. I was... Uh, asked to review the deep sea episode of Blue Planet. I'm not going to have a go at Blue Planet. I'd love to, but I'm not going to. Blue Planet, is, for me, is, is not them per se. It's it, just the latest vehicle which this kind of stuff has been punted around on. So apologies to Blue Planet. It's not you particularly. It's your entire discipline I'm having a go at. I was asked to review it for a journal, so I watched it. It was Guy Fox Night. There's a random fact for you. 2017. And, of course, it starts off, we know more about the surface of, wait a minute, it wasn't the moon. It wasn't the moon this time. Blue Planet 2 have upgraded it. It was we know more about the surface of Mars than we know about the deep sea. So I texted Tom. I actually got a transcript of this text conversation. So I said to Tom, we know more about Mars. I've removed expletives than this, by the way. Tom wrote back gone, well, it's one up on the moon. Personally, he was sick of the moon. He feels he knew the moon like the back of his hands. So I wrote back saying, so we know more about a lifeless dry rock floating in a vacuum than a larger planet covered in water and atmosphere and millions of species. So Tom said this phrase must have an origin, so I should go and find it. So I made it a personal quest, a voyage of discovery, you might say, to find out where on earth this stupid phrase came from. And it gets even more ridiculous. So here's what I found. And I may be wrong, but this is what I found in my little search. This ridiculous statement is nonsense. So the earliest mention of this statement I could find came from somebody called George Deacon who published an article in the Journal of Navigation, and he was quoting a guy called Sir Edward Bullard, who died 40 years ago, is saying it. So this statement was published 67 years ago, right? This is where the origin of the statement that we're still using on a regular basis. 67 years ago. Have we learned anything since then? Well, we've done quite a lot since then. I think we've done a lot in the deep sea and the moon since then. Oh, are they neck and neck? Well, I don't know, maybe. So this statement was originated 15 years before the moon landings, and at a time where I guess we knew not that much about the surface of the moon either. So it's a bit bizarre. Now, it gets interesting when you think about this upgrade from the moon to Mars, and when did that appear? So my sleuthing, it happened around 2010. So does that mean then we know more about Mars now than we did about the moon in 1953? Or does that mean that we still know more about an icy, lifeless, spherical rock drifting in a vacuum in 1953 than the vast oceans of our planet that host millions of species over hundreds of habitat with an inconceivable number of geological, biological and chemical interactions? So I personally think we know quite a lot about the deep sea. Not everything, but we know a lot. But the moon and Mars are just a totally unfair comparison because it's just not the same thing. I know it comes under exploration and I know it comes under sort of these amazing feats of human curiosity and so on, but it's just not the same thing. So let's look at the moon, for example. The moon is about 3,500 kilometres in diameter, right? Australia is wider than the moon's diameter. So the moon's not that big, for starters. The North Atlantic has got a greater footprint than the entire lunar surface. I guess people don't normally think about that. You always think of the moon as being huge, but the North Atlantic is bigger than the moon. So the surface area of the moon is only about 7.5% of that of Earth, and 70% of the moon is not covered with opaque seawater. Right, so give give yourself a fighting chance. The moon isn't sitting under an average of 4,000 metres of water, so imaging the surface of a planet from orbiting satellites is considerably more difficult when there's a gaseous atmosphere of which, I think Earth is what, about 16 kilometres thick, and it's hiding underneath this blue veneer of seawater. Sometimes the statement's used, and I think they're trying to infer that we've mapped more of the moon than the oceans. But there's a whole argument about, well, what constitutes this mapping? It depends on the types of resolution, whether or not it's mapped at very high resolution or very low resolution, and so what. But the surface of the Earth, which is land, is bigger than the Moon. And you can go and Google Earth, and that's the easy bit. So it's still not really like for like. But when you look at the current maps of the seafloor now, we divide up into grid cells, and 82% of those grid cells don't have a single depth measurement. So that's what people use to say, oh, no, we know nothing about the oceans. That's percentage of knowledge. Just divide that by number of grid cells. 
Basically, yeah. 82% of the ocean we don't have depth measurements for, real ones. It's all kind of derived from satellite stuff. So that means we have mapped about 18%. So the total area of the ocean would be about 360 million square kilometres. 18% of that is still almost twice the total area of the moon. So you could argue that we've mapped to a pretty good resolution twice the lunar surface underwater at 4,000 metres average. Right, so that's pretty good. Right, why are we, we hitting ourselves over this? So it depends what you call knowing about it. Mapping doesn't necessarily mean you know about it. It just means you could create a picture of the landscape. It doesn't necessarily mean you understand its importance or what it does or how it changes or any kind of seasonality and so on. So why would you then in deep sea biology say there's less known about deep sea biology than a moon that has no biology at all? We could argue that we know more about my desk than we know about the abyssal plains because there's less attributes to know about. Percentage-wise, it's probably really high. So anyway... This statement is stupid. It's from 60-some years ago, and it was in a different time. It was long before the Apollo missions. It was long before any major deep-sea exploration anyway. So I texted Tom back with my good news, and he wrote back going, it's just every bit as terrible as I hoped. And it came from a time where they probably thought the night sun still caused madness. So uh, anyway, you couldn't make this up, I said. But the earliest upgrade from we know more about the moon to we know more about Mars Believe it or not, came from 2010. So the earliest one I can find is the statement, we know more about the surface of Mars than we know about Kevin Spacey's private life. Which, if you remember, Blue Planet Episode 2 was aired in Guy Fawkes Day 2017, was also happens to coincide with uh, revelations about Kevin Spacey's extracurricular activities. So that was, that was quite nice. So anyway, for somehow, Kevin Spacey's private life has become intertwined with how much we don't know about our own discipline. I couldn't mention any of this for the, the review, so I didn't do it. So... The next one that really bugs me as well is more people have been to the moon than have been to the deepest point on Earth. Again, so what? But let's have a look at it. Is that really a fair comparison? Because the deepest point in the world's ocean is Challenger Deep, right? Mariana Trench. 10,925 metres, plus or minus 15. So the exact boundary of Challenger Deep we don't really know because we just make up contours. If you take 10,000 metres as being the boundary to it, Challenger Deep is about 11 kilometres by 1.6 kilometres wide, oval depression. So the area of Challenger Deep is, let's say, for argument's sake, 14 square kilometres. The moon has a surface area of 38 million square kilometres, which is equivalent to about 7.5% of the Earth. So between 1969 and 1972, six of the Apollo missions put 12 people on the moon. So are we really doing a fair comparison here? Because we're talking about delivering 12 people to an area the size of 38 million square kilometres versus the deepest point in the world, which until recently was about three, to a target of 14 square kilometres. It just doesn't feel right, because we do this, and then we just declare deep-sea explorers the losers, when it's really not the same thing. So, for argument's sake, we could say more people have visited Challenger Deep than have been to the Sea of Tranquility. But even then, the Sea of Tranquility is 500,000 square kilometres wide. So, it's perhaps not a useful analogy, because the technology, the cost, and the effort in these types of exploration are are as polarised as the types of environment they explore. So I don't think we should do deep-sea exploration injustice through unfair analogies like this. But I think we can turn it on its head, and actually, if you really had to go down this route, we could show that deep-sea exploration is not as chronic as people like to think it is. So most deep-submergence vehicles, or submersibles, are operational in the top 1,000 metres. There are a few that go to 4,000 metres, or have gone to 4,000 metres. And there are some that are rated to 6,000 metres, and there are a very few, historically and currently, that can go all the way. But to get to 6,000 metres, you've got a 98% coverage of the seafloor. So it's that 2%, right? If, you, if you're going to go for the hero dives and the hero stories of who got to the top, who got the deepest, you know, if you want to go into that comparing with the moon stuff, let's rather than say who got to Challenger Deep, who got to that 14 square kilometres of the bottom, how many people have got to that last 2% who have broken that six or 7,000 metre mark in something that could go all the way? It becomes much more interesting. Currently, there are only two operational submersibles capable of getting to 6,000 metres or, or a little bit more and that's the Chinese submersible and the Japanese submersible, but they're not rated to full ocean depth. So to get to 6,500 or 7,000 metres with no subs means that you've gone to the maximum depth they can go to. So let's take 7,000 metres as cutoff. Who's been deeper than that, and who could have gone all the way but didn't because they were doing it for science and not for hero dives? So if you tally up those who have only just crossed the Hadal boundary to these other submersibles, it's probably actually quite a lot. But when you go to that bottom 2%, it's very, very little. So if you ask people, how many people have been to the bottom of Challenger Deep? They would probably say Picard and Walsh in 1960 and James Cameron in 2012. But I think it's much more interesting than that. So last year, of course, the five deeps went and put another five people to Challenger Deep. But even that doesn't tell the whole story. Because there were other subs that did some really deep stuff in that bottom 2% long before any of these other subs came along. The one in particular is called the Archimed, which is a French Navy submarine. It was commissioned in 1961. 
massive thing as well. It's huge. He actually did 226 dives. Covered the Japan Trench, Puerto Rico Trench. He worked off the Azores, Mediterranean. 26 of those dives were deeper than 5,000 metres. And of those, 17 were deeper than 6,000. Of those, 11 were deeper than 7,000. So that's quite impressive, right? And nobody's really heard of the Archimed. And it was partly because they were doing good science and doing some really interesting work all over the world. But at the same time, Trieste had banged the deepest place in the world. And that's the one that stamped in everybody's psyche and nobody really bothered about this other one even though it was doing more and actually doing real exploration and so on. As a community, we got so much more from the Archimede. Yeah, absolutely. Some of these guys were going extraordinarily deep. They should be up there in the, the Hall of Fame, if you like. So if you take the Triesta, the Limiting Factor, the Deep Sea Challenger and the Archimede, these are these four subs that have been very, very deep. There has been, I would say, 26 full ocean depth dives. But by the time anyone hears this podcast, it will have been 39. So let's just pretend in the next two weeks that these dives actually go ahead. So there's been 39 full ocean depth submersible dives to depths greater than 7,000 metres, and that delivered 30 people to the bottom 2% of the planet. So four of those 39 dives were the Trieste and Deep Sea Challenger, 11 were in the Archimede, and the rest were in the Limiting Factor. But I want to go back to Archimede for a second, because its extensive diving history is, is quite impressive. If you compare it to the Trieste, for example, well, the Trieste did 41 dives over five years, which is eight and a half dives per year. Archimede did 226 and 13, so that's 17 and a half dives per year during its lifetime, of which 11 were greater than 7,000 metres. And the Archimede put 13 people to depth greater than 7,000 metres before Neil Armstrong ever landed on the moon. So 13 people had been beyond seven kilometres underwater before the Apollo program, and nobody seems to care about that. We're still barking about more people have stood on the moon that have been to Challenge Deep. I don't think that's altogether fair, but I think you've got to acknowledge the fact that the polar missions and deep submergence explorations are equally as important to their fields. But the cost and the effort and the delivery of these things are very different. And plus, to be an astronaut requires years of grueling physical and mental training. But to dive in a submarine, all you really need, if you're not the pilot, is to not be claustrophobic in an iron bladder. You don't need years and years of training, right? You just need to be able to hold it for about 12 hours. Until recently, to become an astronaut, you have to go through the surrender selection process. But now if you want to dive Challenger Deep, you can just pay for it. So comparing these two disciplines seems a total injustice to deep sea explorers, I think. An important point to consider is why did it take so long to double the number of dives from 60 years ago? I think that's a true thing. It's not comparing it with space. It's how come the Apollo mission finished and no one's been back? And how come it took 60 years for people to follow in Don Walsh's footsteps? That's a big issue. And interesting, there's parallels there because the, the new sort of renaissance and Space exploration has been privately funded, as the deep submersible projects in the deep sea is privately funded. So it's obviously the financial packages of these things has, has changed. But these constant space analogies, I think, are self-harming and serve very little purpose, as they do not ignore the fact that thousands of deep sea biologists, ecologists, geologists, chemists, physicists have, since the days of Challenger Expedition, never ceased in their work in making new discoveries, and sampling and diving, surveying. We know so much more about the deep sea now than we did five years ago and ten years ago. And these statements come along and just trash all that and say, now we know nothing about it. This is the reason why a lot of deep sea people stand up and constantly barking about, why don't people care about the deep sea? Is it people probably don't care about the deep sea because we keep telling them we know nothing about it. <laughs> as a community, we're absolutely as guilty. Multiple grant applications and multiple papers I've read cite the, the moon analogy. Which, as you say, is not only out of date, it's not even that applicable. It doesn't really work. But how do you get people to care about something when you're telling them that we know less about that than we know about a dry rock floating in space? I suppose you're dangling the carrot of the mystery of the, oh, we could find anything, it could be anything. We say mapping, but it, it's about seeing something. And we're, we're, we're really going to dive into this in one of our later guests, but the, the psychology of the deep sea and why we, we struggle to quantify this stuff. We say mapping, but it's about seeing. We don't feel like we know the deep sea because we can't see it. The, the moon is right there. Fair enough, it's, if it's a slightly abstract subject, like you, you're not going to come into contact with the moon, but you can see it and your, your mind has accepted it. And think about how strange that actually is, you know, especially for our ancient ancestors who didn't understand about astral bodies. There's a giant glowing rock suspended in the sky, but we have internalized that and we've accepted that exists. But we cannot directly see the deep sea. We cannot look at it. It's always going to be obscured by this water. And so, as we're going to touch on later, it sits in our subconscious and it gives us all these strange emotions. And, and unfortunately, even the scientific community sort of plays on that, on that, you know, what could be hidden there? And we're sort of, in this podcast, trying to preach a much more realistic approach of what is really there? What is the, the, the mechanisms that are going on? And the interesting thing is, once you go through that looking glass 
and you learn enough to appreciate it, it's far, far more interesting than just a spooky story about we don't know what's there. It gets really, really interesting, but you just need a, a little bit of foundation, a little bit of context to really appreciate it. And that's what we're going to try and do here, to allow you to, to have that little bit of context and then really enjoy a factual, a real, the deep sea as it exists. I think you end up with a kind of echo chamber where you've got scientists who are advising documentary and, and putting out press releases and stuff, and they're playing on these types of analogies. And then it goes out to the public, and the public get the impression that we know nothing about it. And then some of those were inspired enough to come to university. And I, I see it as a university lecture. You get people want to come and work with me and do projects. And you go, why? And go, because it's so weird and mysterious and fascinating and bizarre. And, and, and that, that's come from the scientific community through these different outlets into the psyche of young kids who then want to go and do it because we know nothing about it. And quite often the, the, you can see the look of disappointment on the face sometimes when they go, oh, deep sea fish, and, oh, it's so weird and mysterious. And you say, no, it's not. It's just a fish. It's just a fish and it's going around looking for food because it needs to eat. And you can demystify every element of that fish. You can Everything that's weird and gross and creepy about that fish, you can explain why it's like that. But you don't want to. You don't. You don't. You don't want to just strip away that whole sense of awe and say like, "Well, actually, deep sea boring. It's just, it's just like shallow water, but less is going on." Just trying to dismantle that unnecessary enigmatization of of it and try and make it and just just get people to appreciate it for what it is. And it is interesting enough on its own. It doesn't need all this. Everything's a monster, a creature, or everything's weird and space analogies and how many people have walked on the moon and and so on. It just doesn't serve any purpose whatsoever. In fact, I'm, you know, I'd be really happy to never hear those phrases again. I think it comes back to how do you like your magic? Do you like to see an incredible sort of spectacle and then be totally confused by it? Or do you like the sort of, oh, what was it called? The, the masked magician or something like that, where they show how it's done. And to be honest, for me, maybe, maybe this is sort of in science mode, that was much more interesting. Yeah. I, how they did the illusion was often like far, far more impressive than, oh, maybe this guy's magic. What it did reveal is how much the assistant is doing and how little the magician actually does. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's just contortionist women while a guy grandstands. <laughs> yeah, no, it's an interesting point. But, I mean, you know, part of science is to, is to take these unknowns and then explain them. But at the same time, you don't, you know, you're not trying to ruin people's perception of the natural world by explaining everything. I think there's still room for both. That just needs to be done in a, in a helpful way. I think you could start off conversations about the deep sea on a much, much more interesting footing. It doesn't need to be the deep sea is boring and we know everything about it. That's, that's not where we're going with this. So you just don't need to throw people a, a, an unnecessary curveball right from the start and, and sell it for something that it isn't. The interesting thing is that the, they start with that preconception, because I guess that, that sells documentaries and that sells sort of other forms of media. I had one other day. I got a phone call just two days ago from a, a journalist who was asking me about this next suite of dives to Challenger Deep. And the reason why he's phoning me is like, I just want to check. This is this will be the 12th person to dive to Challenger Deep. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Because that's the same amount of people who have walked on the moon. And I just said, oh, come on, you know, could you, could you not do that? And his quote was, I know it's stupid, but I'm a journalist. So that, that will be the story that goes out, is there's now the same number of people who have been to Challenge Deep than have walked on the moon. They knew the sort of angle they wanted to play in that and shaped it into it, because that was the moon analogy again. And it's interesting how many times you've been quoted at saying the moon analogy, which is absolutely untrue. When you push against that and just say, you know, I, I certainly never said that, and it's got into the press release. Yeah, yeah, but that's, that's what everyone says. That's what everyone expects. Yeah. And you can't, you can't do that. You can't deliver news in a format that's... But you can. I've got examples of that too. Even responsible, well, I say responsible, but let's say high quality media, still, when it comes to deep water, can't resist the opportunity to tell you what you want to hear rather than what this is actually about. And a good example of that is a couple of articles recently in New Scientist. I, mean, I, I think New Scientist is brilliant. It is absolutely wonderful. And the stories in it are amazing. But where it completely falls, falls down is whenever they've got a deep sea story. There was one recently called Creatures of the Deep. I mean, Creatures of the Deep. But we've not progressed from that yet. Uh, and it was a, a, an unbelievable non-story. It didn't even have a story. It was about some guy deploying dead alligators to the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico, which you and I, Tom, have done this for years. There's absolutely no real value in that at all. We know that if you put food on the deep sea floor, 
the usual scavengers will come and eat it, whether it's a crocodile or a polar bear or a penguin, doesn't really matter. But the story didn't conclude with why this was useful or important. It talked about lots of work, ossidacs and these bone-eating worms that we know about in the deep sea. It mentioned all that stuff in the context of it's already been done years ago. Uh, and it seemed to conclude with one of the alligator carcasses was eaten by a shark as well as the two-inch thick polypropylene rope. So the, the, the story was just a sort of fumbling, let's just try and mention as many deep sea things as possible and concludes in it with uh, we fed plastic to a, a deep sea shark. The whole thing to me was just read like an excuse to have creatures of the deep written on the front cover. I think they, they started with the image and worked back. Yeah. An alligator tied up with rope at the bottom of the sea being eaten by giant isopods. That is a cool image. And then a sort of retroactive giving the people what they want. Here is a here is a freak show. Here are some monsters. Yeah. And a weak article to associate with that. Any other publication, fair enough. But in New Scientist, that was an experiment. You know, there was a hypothesis. There, there was that was to prove something. That was to investigate something. And it wasn't to produce a picture which looks like a, a heavy metal album cover. Yeah. Which is weird because about two weeks beforehand in New Scientist, there used to be a little thing, a little column that said good scientific things in news and bad scientific things in the news. And the one at the very bottom of bad was some snipey comment about scientists have started throwing alligators in the deep sea. As if to say science has gone mad, it's so stupid. And then two weeks later, they make it the this big spread. But then I've just packed it full of just generic deep sea waffle to justify the photograph. It's, it's the wording like creatures of the deep. And then two weeks later... On the front cover, it says Monsters of the Deep. So I'm like, hello, Monsters of the Deep. How do you separate a creature from a monster? In my head, it's scale. No, no. Oh. Creatures of the Deep are animals that are still alive. Oh. They're real. Normally, if, if it gets below 200 metres, it's a creature. If it's above 200 metres, it's a species or an animal. Right? That seems to be the, the rules of the media. But a monster is either something that doesn't exist that you want you to think exists, or it's a extinct animal. In this case, the Monster of the Deep. Now, think about it. Monster... Deep. What's the, what kind of image is in your head right now? What do you think that is? I'm going Kraken. Kraken? Yeah. Big. Scary. Big, scary. Rum. Right. The The story is actually a two-third page story on the Tully monster, which is something that lived around 300 million years ago. And to be fair, it's an ugly looking thing. It's kind of like half squid, half robot arm. Oh, it's close. Yeah, yeah, but then you read the actual story and it says it's between 6 and 35 centimetres long and lived in the shallow waters of what is now Utah. So I wouldn't have said anything that was six centimetres long and lived in shallow water would ever comprise a monster of the deep. But it's the monster of the deep that gets in the front cover. Yeah. I mean, I did. I flicked through it and said, right, what's this monster? And it'd be more interesting to write a story about why on earth does it look like that? I have to just think it's, it's bizarre. A big part of working in science is scientific publishing, and it's it's a really unique area. It grazes the public consciousness, but it's, it's worth understanding what goes on, and it's worth understanding what we mean when we say peer review. You've probably heard that quite a lot with all the, the COVID stuff that's going on at the moment, and what actually peer review is. So we publish our scientific findings in scientific journals. Uh, they tend to be subscription-based. That's their business model. Uh, and universities and other institutions sort of subscribe to these things. So a lot of the criticism is often that this is a bit of a walled garden, but scientists, for their own careers, they want you to read their work, and also just for the greater human good, they want other people to read their work as well. So we, we have little loopholes. We do try and make our papers accessible to everyone. Uh, and in order to maintain the quality of that, in order for that to mean something, uh, we go through this process called peer review. So you'll you produce this document that outlines this experiment you've done and the results you found uh, and what you think it means. So everything you state within that document should be proven or heavily indicated by your experiment. And anything else you put in there should be referenced. It should be cited. I can't just say, oh, I don't know, picking something at random. We know more about the surface of the moon than we do the deep sea. I can't just say that in a scientific paper unless my paper has proven that. Then uh, an editor of the journal, they will distribute that to anonymous experts around the world. And I think this is something that's really quite nice about science. At the moment, that is unpaid. So the scientific community, just to maintain the rigor and honesty and quality of science, sacrifice a huge amount of their time reviewing and challenging each other's work. And even if you adore the paper, even if you think it's incredibly useful, it's a great experiment, your role as a reviewer is to pick holes in it, is to find anything that doesn't stand up to scrutiny and to honestly sort of tear it apart. 
that was a long way of saying what happens is you, you you write something you're really proud of and you think is brilliant, you give it to someone you don't know who gives it to three other people, the first two come back saying, yeah, this is fine, then the third person comes back saying this is wretched and horrible. And then you go through this whole dance of trying to justify the fact it's not wretched and it's great and then you realise that it was wretched and what they've done is actually made it great and about six months later you've forgotten about it and it appears in a scientific journal. Yeah, that's probably more succinct than me. It is an emotional roller coaster. No, I don't see it like that. I, I, I genuinely see it as, and I try to get this across to my students, that feedback is not criticism. Review comments are not criticism. What they're doing is telling you how to make what you've done even better. But people take it as criticism. <laughs> yeah. Is that not what constructive criticism is? Is how to make something better? No, but everybody takes it really badly. I mean, I guess everybody does when they first start doing this, because it is weird that someone you don't know has just seemingly slated what you're doing, but... Nobody slates it. If you look at the review comments, very rarely does anyone say anything personal. Tom and I happen to know the editor of a journal, a Deep Sea journal too. Not just the editor. Not the, not just the editor, the editor-in-chief. That's different. That means you're the best editor. So he's going to be our guest on the show today. So his name is Professor Monty Priad. He's a fish biologist, professor of zoology. He spent most of his time in the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. He's also a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. We should do a show on what it means to be a fellow, Tom, because I love that word. I'm seeing an outfit already. I've got a top hat and cane. I know. He's also the fellow of the Institute of Fisheries Management too. And he's a recipient of the Beverton Medal for the Fisheries Society of the British Isles. And he retired from Aberdeen in 2013, but he's one of these guys who will never truly retire. As soon as he retired, he uh, wrote a book on deep sea fishes with Cambridge University Press. And then he took up the role as editor-in-chief of the journal Deep Sea Research Part 1. He's also the guy that gave me my big break in this business, so we like a bit of Monty. He's both of our science dad. He is science dad. He, he science raised us. I was going to say science overlord, but he's too nice to be an overlord. No, there's, there's a paternal energy to him. Spiritual father of Deep yeah. Sea. Yeah. So Monty currently operates out of his lovely house in the, the valleys at the surrounding Iraculin in Crete, and that's where he joins us from today. So, hello, Monty. Hello, Alan. Good to hear from you. I would say you're probably the only person I know who can articulate the finer points of animal physiology in a way that I think is actually understandable. So, and I was thinking about this earlier, about the way that I teach and the way that I think was probably influenced by the way you taught me is about the synergies between engineering and biology in that I've, I've recently started describing biology as being nothing but smelly engineering. It's, it's, it's all very much intertwined. Do you see the parallels in, two, in, in the two things? Because as a deep sea scientist, obviously there's a lot of engineering, plus there's a lot of biology. Do you, uh, do you, do you see the two things as being quite similar? Yes, they're very much intertwined. I mean, when I was an undergraduate at a school of ocean sciences in Bangor, we were taught by Professor McNeil Alexander, who wrote a book called Animal Mechanics, and what he did was in his book and in the classes he taught us was to show that you can apply mechanical engineering principles to how fish swim, how kangaroos jump, and so on. So that set me off thinking about this, how animals work. Uh, they have to obey the laws of thermodynamics. They can't fly supersonic. Uh, they have to maintain energy balance and so uh, right at the start of my career as a zoologist, I started thinking of animals as sophisticated machines. Uh, to be a deep sea biologist, inevitably, uh, both from the point of view of understanding the animals and figuring out how you're going to observe and study them, you need to have an engineering background of some sort. So I also... We're just reading your latest paper in Journal of Experimental Biology, and it's about shark buoyancy, which I think exemplifies that point. It is, it is very much an engineering paper about shark buoyancy, uh, and it follows on, I think, quite a lot from that paper you published 2006, I think it was, which was the sharks don't go deep in 3,000 metres. Uh, it all sort of ties in as why why do some animals have, a, have an ultimate depth on it, which isn't full ocean depth, but... I remember there being some sort of, you telling me there was an epiphany moment at some conference about the absence of sharks in the abyss. Do you remember that? Yes, I, I mean, the uh, I paper, because I'd been invited to a meeting in Germany by the 
European Elasmobranch Association, and they asked me to give a paper, a talk entitled Deep Sea Sharks. And I just thought about it, and I thought, well, there aren't any... Well, it was actually sharks in the abyss, and the abyss officially is water deeper than 3,000 meters. And then I thought about it, and I thought, well, there aren't any sharks that I know of that live deeper than 3,000 meters. But I'd never really thought hard about it. And so I stood up and I said, well, this title is erroneous. And I showed all the records we had that there are no sharks in the abyss. Uh, whereupon the audience members were uh, really, an argument ensued. And eventually the chairman had to stop the argument. Uh, but the next day, Rainer Froser, who is the a manager of fish base at the time, uh, stood up to give a special talk uh, uh, where he had gone through the entire fish base searching for any sharks that lived deeper than 3,000 meters. And he confirmed that what I had said was right. And then we subsequently got together and together with other colleagues and wrote the paper on the absence of sharks from the abyss. So it was a sort of an unexpected finding that had been creeping up on the scientific community for decades, but nobody had put it into so many words until I had been asked to actually give a talk describing the sharks that live in the abyss. So I think all good things start with an argument at a conference, don't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you come across anything similar when you wrote the book, Deep Sea Fishies? Because I know from writing a book myself that sometimes there are things that are in hindsight glaringly obvious, but you don't see them until you've collated a whole bunch of different disparate data sets. Is there anything that came up during that? Well, this is the problem. I mean, when I wrote section on buoyancy at great depth, uh, one of the problems for any animal that's diving deep is that the, um, uh, if they have a gas bladder, the gas gets compressed and, they, and the volume of the buoyancy organ decreases. And so uh, the animal would start sinking. And similarly, oil gets compressed at high pressure. But what I realized was that actually nobody had proper data for the compressibility of oxygen and indeed shark oil at these very high pressures. And that's why I ended up uh, writing uh, uh, these recent papers, uh, the one on the compressibility of gas at very high pressures and the compressibility of oil at very high pressures. So it's only when you try and put together the argument, you realize that there are holes in it. Yeah. <laughs> so going back and looking at your your career, I would, from where I see it, I, I think your career looks like one of two halves. I mean, you spent quite a long time in the first half doing a lot of shallow water physiology and remember you telling yeah. me lots of stories of salmon and rainbow trout and stuff like that. And there was a, a particular moment, I think, where you sort of jumped from shallow to deep. Can you tell us about that? I had one experience during my when I was a student, when I was invited out on the maiden voyage of the then new Royal Research Ship Challenger, which had just been delivered to the Environment Research Council in the UK. And uh, so I, at that time, I went out to, to sea with Malcolm Clark and uh, from the Plymouth Lab and uh, John Blackster. But then you're right, I didn't do anything about deep sea stuff for a long time because I I was working on in living in Scotland. Funding was available for work on salmon and trout and fish farming, booming. So anything you could do in terms of research was that. But then I was, in, I was invited to a conference in Naples by Bruno Totter, who, who was, uh, uh, works at the Naples lab. And he was interested in work I'd done on fish hearts and he asked me to come and give a lecture about the uh, hearts of the trout. And so I went and gave this talk. And during this conference, there was a party on the island of Capri. And I got talking to um, uh, some people from the Scripps Institute of Oceanography. And they said, hey, what have you thought of working on deep sea stuff? You know, uh, George Somero it was. And so George Somero invited me to the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, where I was, uh, where I, uh, he invited me to give a big lecture uh, at Scripps in La Jolla. 
And I was talking about how I've been telemetering heart rate using acoustic transmitters on wild salmon and fish living in the wild. And uh, it turned out that the transmitters I had been building actually worked at high pressure. We did some tests. And so then I was invited on a, on a cruise with Ken Smith out in the Pacific Ocean and where we started tracking deep sea fish uh, hundreds of miles north of Hawaii. And it was one of those experiments I thought was crazy, but it all worked first time. And everything we did, there was a brand new discovery. Um, and I got very excited about this because we're, you know, working on salmon and trout, which have been studied for centuries, you could only make small incremental adv advances. But the deep sea was very, very exciting. And I switched to deep sea research from then on. Huh. See, again, big career moments change at a party, right? It's all about the yes. Asian conferences. Yeah. So you're now the editor of Deep Sea Research. How long have you been doing that now? About five, six years? Well, I, I've been uh, editor-in-chief for, uh, uh, I think it's about five, six years, and I was yeah. an associate editor for about 10 years prior to that. So I'm genuinely interested in this, because I don't recall ever reading or seeing an interview with, with the editor-in-chief of a scientific journal. So I have lots of questions, and, I, and I'm aware yeah. that I have a, a paper submitted to your journal right now. So, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is, is it a full-time job? What's, what's the sort of average day like for, for an editor-in-chief? Do you handle like tens of hundreds of papers a, a, a month? What, what, what's um, the I suppose I handle about 20, 30 papers a, a month. Okay. Uh, so it's one or one every day or every other day. And it's a couple of hours work each morning. It varies. Sometimes it's half a day. And then I have a team of associate editors and I farm the papers out, allocate the papers to specialist associate editors. Or if it's a field where I'm an expert myself, such as deep sea fishes, I'll, I'll handle the paper myself. We, well. we also have to ask, do you ever get absolute howlers of papers which are just completely off the wall nuts? Well, they're, they're, we get what we call table rejections, you know, where right. somebody simply submitted a paper to the completely the wrong journal. It's nothing to do with the deep sea. And, uh, and then, there, then there are good papers. You know, it's nice to see, you know, you get a good paper come in and you can see straight away that, it's, uh, that it'll probably be accepted. But normally we send papers out to reviewers. Uh, and it's the reviewers we have to thank because they're the ones who do the hard work uh, and, uh, and we have to ask them kindly to volunteer work that all scientists have to do is, is reviewing each other's work. And the top scientists are very, very busy and rarely have time to review papers. So for editors, it's a constant battle trying to find uh, good reviewers who know something about the subject to review papers. Do you know? Do you have an idea of roughly what the acceptance to rejection rate is? Do you, do you find yourself spending like a week constantly writing rejection letters? No, no. I, I like the days when I'm accepting papers. There's no, nothing like a good morning when, uh, say, if I, you know, if I accept three papers in a row, you know, and the, you know, the associate editors have said this is okay, this is fine. The reviewers say it's fine. And so I can get send a congratulatory email. What I really hate doing is uh, is rejecting papers. Um, what we tend to do in deep sea research is, you know, if a paper has got hope, asking the reviewers to re the authors to revise it until it's reached a level uh, that we think is appropriate. Uh, mm -hmm. What I really hate is if we we ask people to revise it and, it and it comes back and it's still bad. We ask them to revise it again and it's still bad. And then we eventually have to say, well, look, we just reject it. You know? <laughs> uh, that's the worst kind of rejection. I don't mind quick rejections. Sometimes I just, I just say, well, sorry, this isn't so interesting to us. Uh, you may work. Because you have to remember deep sea research is a very broad journal. I mean, we do deep sea microbiology. We do geology, undersea volcanoes. Uh, and atmospheric science uh, and so on. So sometimes somebody sends in a paper on uh, some kind of plankton and you say, well, it's, it's not quite important enough to, to mm. go in deep sea research. You know, this can go in a, in a plankton journal or a, or, a or a crustacean journal or something like that. 
that. So, so in general, it's a, it's a, I, I see it as a matter of helping the authors to publish in the most appropriate journal they can. And if it's a deep sea research one, so much the better. Thank you very much for giving that little insight into your career and being the editor-in-chief. Uh, and the last question that we're going to ask all our guests is, what's the best party you've ever been to? I, I, I think the best party I've ever been to is probably that party on Capri, where I first made contact with the people from Script. It was just the whole atmosphere of the island of Capri. The wine was fantastic. The hosts had actually laid down the red wine two years previously. That was part of the symposium planning. And then they'd got sponsorship and they invited 30 elite scientists from around the world. And, uh, and, and I was the young youngster who'd been invited along. And uh, it was a beautiful experience in the sense that, you know, the environment was great. The food was fantastic. Uh, the views of the sea. And uh, this is where the... Uh, uh, Roman emperors used to enjoy their holidays, you know. And, and I thought, oh, this is the this is the life, you know. <laughs> Brilliant. A party that changed you the course of your career forever. Yeah, now that that was an added bonus on top of a very good party. Well, thanks very much, Monty Priet. Thanks for your time, uh, and good luck with Deep Sea Research Part One. Thank you. So that was Monty. Uh, really grateful to have him. We'll jump on any excuse to have a chat with Monty. Like we say, he's, uh, he's our science dad. His paper on sharks being absent from the greater depths of the ocean is, is freely available. So I will post a link to that and anyone who's interested in that can look into it. It is a great one to read to counteract some of the more interesting YouTube videos I always come across. Megalodon, the extinct giant shark, uh, is not hiding away in the ocean trenches as seen in the, the documentary film, The Meg. Monty will outline it in this paper, and I really encourage you to read some of the scientific papers. We'll, we'll try and throw some interesting ones your way, uh, ones that everyone has public access to. Scientific writing can seem a little bit dry at the start. We'll try and cherry pick the ones that are quite accessible. In Monty's paper looking at the sharks, he, he noticed that they very rarely go beyond 3,000 meters deep, which knocks out all of the sort of abyssal plain. It knocks out most of the planet, actually. So sharks and deep sea sharks tend to be fairly isolated around land masses and sea mounts. They don't have the sort of whole planet to play with like a lot of deep sea fish do. And there's a few different reasons for that. Uh, one of the key ones is that sharks use their liver for buoyancy. They use the oils of their liver uh, in order to make themselves neutrally buoyant. Uh, and most deep sea fish, uh, the sort of bony fishes, they use their liver as a long-term energy store. It's expensive to maintain your buoyancy by making fats, basically. Uh, it's far easier to have a swim bladder like the bony fishes do, which is basically an internal balloon that you inflate and deflate. Uh, you also kind of have to pick which type of fat you're going to make. So the, the sharks make a few different fats for their liver. Uh, they make ones that are not that good at storing energy, but are really good for buoyancy. And they make others that are, are just as energy stores. But of course, there's not a great deal of food in the deep sea and sharks may go a long period of time between meals. And you can't start burning through your, your source of buoyancy, the thing that's keeping you up in the water, in order to hopefully find your next meal. Sharks tend to actually break down their, their tissue rather than their livers. Their, the, the liver is too important for buoyancy. Basically, the, the way that sharks operate becomes more and more expensive energetically once you go beyond about 2,000 meters. We've never really seen sharks much further beyond around 3,000 meters. So I'm afraid the megalodon has probably left us. It's probably not uh, hiding out there in the ocean. I'll, I'll never say it's impossible, but we've been sticking bait into the deep sea for a long time now, and we've attracted loads of nice big gnarly sharks, but uh, we've not seen a megalodon yet. That would be a good paper. Part of uh, our work often means that we, we travel all over the world uh, to some pretty rare and unusual and inhospitable places. And that generates some good offshore stories. So as part of this, to sort of juxtapose the, uh, the science, uh, a little bit of adventure, a little bit of tales from the, uh, the high seas. Did you have one for this episode, Alan? Yeah, there's one I was thinking of the other day because it's a, it's a story that I kind of forgotten about because I wasn't going to tell anybody. Well, I couldn't tell anyone at the time, so it's a story that you need so to... So this is an exclusive? I guess so, yeah. It's one of these stories you've got to tell backwards. It was after the first time I did a proper deep submersible dive in Java Trench. 
there's a whole bunch of photographs of me stood in the deck of the boat, standing at a bit of, bit of a funny angle. It looks like I've got a bad back, right? I've kind of stood there going, ooh. And it's weird now, you look through the photographs and, it, and no one's ever commented, like, why, why is Al standing in such a weird position? It's a really weird stance. You'd been stuffed into a titanium ball for 12 hours. We assumed you'd just yeah. taken on the shape of the ball. Well, everyone just assumes that because... It, and it, there is an element of that, that when you sit in a little ball for 12 hours, it, you, you, your back does tend to seize up because you can't move your legs. It is quite uncomfortable. But that's not quite the reason why uh, I was stood at such a jaunty angle. But that, that, that sub-dive was one where the hatch was leaking until about 5,500 metres deep. It was one we accidentally drove the sub underneath a, an overhang at 7,200 metres and... It was just an amazing dive, but I, I knew it was going to be brilliant, so I, I wasn't going to tell anyone what had happened in case they pulled me from the dive. So the only person who knows to some degree what was going on was, was a captain, who remain nameless. So I asked him for some painkillers that morning, and I took quite a lot of painkillers that morning, because there was something wrong with me, and it wasn't just, it wasn't just my bad back. About a week before we flew to Bali to do that, I was on the living room floor just mucking around with the boys. Uh, that's my children, that is, not the lads. But at one point I was on the floor and all three of them were piling on my back and I, I sort of lifted myself up and I felt something snap in my ribcage. I thought, oh, you kidding. And just before I flew out to join the ship in Bali, uh, I thought I was long overdue a night out with my mate Dave. And everyone's got a mate Dave. So I went out in Edinburgh. But at some point in that night, Dave actually punched me straight in the rib that had cracked due to the, the rumbling and tumbling of, of children a week beforehand. So loved ones had assaulted you on two separate occasions. Yeah, well, kids had started something and then Dave had just obliterated something in my ribcage and it was absolutely killing me. So the morning of the dive, I thought, this, you know, this is going to be my first hail dive ever. This will be the first time a British person has been in the hail zone. No one's taking this away from me. So I took a whole bunch of painkillers. Of course, by the end of the dive, the painkillers have long worn off and I'm trying to climb up through the, the trunking of the sub and everything else and the ribs are clicking away. <laughs> <laughs> just rattling loose in there. And there's these weird photographs of me stood in the top of the sub like, Hi, everybody. Hi. I never told anyone that because they probably think I was a bit reckless and I shouldn't have done it. One of these big moments in Hadle Exploration and it was nearly ruined by a punch from my mate Dave. So that's us for the very first episode of the Deep Sea Podcast. We are all in lockdown. We are very new to this. So please forgive us if the first episode is a little bit clunky, but I think I think there's something here. I think if we if we find our footing and get this sounding a little bit slicker once we get the hang of it, I really will encourage you to stick around, mainly for our guests, even if you find us really irritating. Uh, we've got some incredible guests on the way, and to tease the next episode, we will be talking to Don Walsh. He's most famous for being one of the first people to dive the Challenger Deep, but as soon as you start talking to him, he's full of stories, and it's a shame that people always ask him about that. Uh, is there a, a good sort of summation of Don, Alan? Don's just a legend, isn't it? That's, that's what he's made a career of. He's just Don Walsh, the legend. Can you summarise roughly why he's famous, why, why we know of Don Walsh? Well, he's famous because he was the lieutenant who took the Trieste down Challenger Deep in 1960, and then he was a submarine commander and, and an explorer and did a lot of work with oceanography and so on. But he's just a really switched on, unbelievably influential old chap who really doesn't ever take himself too seriously. He'll, he'll win you over. So even if we sound slightly clunky and we drive you insane, it's worth tuning in next time to hear from Don. So thanks all for listening. This has been the Deep Sea Podcast with Tom and Alan. This was supported by our company, Amartus Oceanic. If you want to explore the deep sea yourself, uh, we can help you do that. But if you want to bring the deep sea to your audience, if you want facts and storytelling about the deep sea, then we can help with that also. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>